Hello, this is Kevin Barrett. After I published We Are Not Charlie Hebdo two years ago, I was attacked by the think tank of the President of France, banned from entering Canada, banned at the Unitarian Church in Berkeley, California. They took down my GoFundMe database, and now I've been banned from the left forum in New York City. Last year I did a talk on why Noam Chomsky is wrong about 9-11 at the left forum and apparently they don't want me back but I'm going anyway. For details you can check out my website and go to the Veterans Today rubric that's truthjihad.com click on the Veterans Today rubric and you'll find the story about how the left forum tried to stop the discussion of 9-11 truth, false flags, and fake terror. Well, I have to somehow survive in the face of all this opposition. If you'd like to help, please go to truthjihad.com and subscribe to these radio shows, or make a one-time contribution through the PayPal button. Once again, that's truthjihad.com. Truth Jihad Radio, I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth on the Internet airwaves since 2006. Well, we're living in a corporatocracy, a plutocracy, an oligarchy, under an oligarchy, whatever you want to call it, it's pretty much a word for rule of the wealthy and powerful few over the rest of us, and they're getting more and more bold and more dastardly every minute. And I just came across an excellent new book that sums up a whole lot of this huge problem that we're facing. And it's called Corporate Conspiracies by Richard Belzer and David Wayne. They're the same guys who did the uh, book on the uh, killings of the JFK witnesses. Uh, and, and Richard, Richard Belzer, welcome to the show. And remind me the name of your book on, on the JFK thing. Oh, it was Hit List. Hit List, that's right. Yeah, great yeah. book. And another book called Dead Wrong about JFK and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe and all these major deaths famous deaths that were all all involved in cover-ups right yeah it's, it's uh really fascinating stuff i'm glad you're covering this because you know for a long time these things were there's a pretty serious lid put on all of this in the mainstream and now with the internet people are gradually waking up to it but this is a real big picture book your your book on corporate conspiracies you know you cover you cover the waterfront <laughs> the corporate takeover yeah. Yeah, well, we've been doing this for a long time, you know, delving into. I used to be a reporter before I was an actor, so um, actually I'd be a journalist if I wasn't in show business. So this is kind of my first love, really. Um, and this book is um, more of a history, journalistic history book. The other books, you know, people uh, can debate us about, even though they're full of factual information. But this, we have an amazing bibliography in this. My partner, David Wayne, is a great researcher. And, you know, we just really cover the waterfront, as you said. And um, one of the things that we want is don't take our word for it. You know, I never take anybody's word for anything. I'm sure you guys are the same way. You have to, you know, get cooperation, find out where the information's coming from. 
you know, um, not everybody has time to do that, but fortunately, you know, we do as researchers delve into this stuff for long periods of time and come up. You don't have to make anything up, Kevin. You know, reality is horrific and beautiful and scary enough, so. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your courage in this book in taking on the 9-11 issue. That's the one that got me chased out of academia. And your your segment on Building 7 in the chapter on mainstream media consolidation is, is excellent. And I, I imagine that the, the mainstream reviewers are probably not going to appreciate it, but they should because this is it's such such an obviously important thing. It's funny, I you know, New York Times doesn't review my books, but I make their bestseller list. <laughs> yeah, well, someday they may have to notice you. Uh, oh, the irony. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's interesting. The uh, In the book, we talk about the term conspiracy theory, the phrase conspiracy theorist. Yeah. And it was actually invented by the CIA. I don't know if you know that. I sure do. Book. Yeah, it's, I, I hammer on that one as often as I can. Oh, good. You know, it's a weaponized term that they used after the Warren Commission came out and everybody is doubting the reputation of the American government. And if people want to look this up, it's CIA document 1035-960, April 1st, 1967. Talk about April Fool's, huh? Yeah, so that's the conspiracy theorist conspiracy. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, but it's funny, the term... Conspiracy theorists is is a conspiracy in itself. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of uh, you know irony. The, the concept of irony hardly does it justice. But the way it's been applied post nine eleven is even more absurd. In that with nine eleven, everybody admits it had to have been some kind of conspiracy since it couldn't have been the work of one person acting alone, as they claimed the JFK hit was. So, you know, they're applying this this term in a completely ludicrously inappropriate way, and yet it still seems to work to shut people's minds down. Well, it depends on who they're talking about. And, you know, I I don't shy away from the term conspiracy theorist because um, we back everything up with facts. We're not talking about, uh, you know, we didn't go to the moon or, you know, chemtrails and two things that are, you know, fascinating subjects. But this is hard facts that are irrefutable that we put in the book that can be checked. Um, and, you know, I'm we're very, very uh, vehement about that. About, you know, please look at this stuff up on your own. Right. Well, you also uh, in this book, I think, put your finger on a, a really important issue for all of us who are looking into these kinds of cases, which is the role of money in in virtually all of them. That is, for instance, in your chapter on perpetual war, America's biggest export, you make that case that it's you know we talk about geostrategy and we talk about ideology and American mm-hmm. exceptionalism, Israeli exceptionalism, all this kind of stuff. But when you get right down to it, a whole lot of the reason that we have these 9-11 publicity stunts to drag us into wars is that a whole lot of people are making a lot of money off it. Yeah, well, Eisenhower warned us, but I always felt he should have, that should have been his first <laughs> State of the Union address and not his farewell. You know, the world's run by the worst people. Good night. You know, thank you, Ike. But anyway, you know, a lot of people, the United States spends more on defense and weapons of war than the rest of the world's nations put together. You know, and we detail many wasteful programs in the book. 
such as on, you know, about the F-35. Uh, the F-35 costs $1.5 trillion. That's trillion with a T, which is always a thousand billion dollars. You know, I always think of it that way. A thousand billion dollars on a plane that many experts say is already obsolete. You know, that's just one example of waste. I mean, there are many more in the book. But here's what's diabolical about the Pentagon and the defense industry. The Pentagon goes around to every congressional district. That's the nation's 535 congressional districts. And what they do is they have contracts in each of these districts. So anytime that there is a threat of not funding one of their precious Pentagon programs, they blackmail that congressman and say that it would mean a huge loss of jobs in their district, a fact, a fact you know, which would, they would make very public if necessary. And that's why these ridiculously wasteful Pentagon programs never or rarely get eliminated as they should. That's a cute trick they do, isn't it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And then there's a geographical element here, too. My friend and colleague, Dr. Bob Rochlein, uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, has done a bunch of work on what he calls peace economics, looking at the you know economical aspect of the military-industrial complex. What he finds is that the uh, mainstream of the economics profession – uh, actually overstates the benefits and understates the downsides of military spending. And if you, you know, look, crunch the numbers properly, what you find is that there's a direct correlation between high military spending and all sorts of negative indicators, and that if you chart the economy before World War II, for example, it wasn't really World War II that pulled the U.S. out of the Depression. That was happening before World War II actually slowed the emergence from the Depression. And what Bob also points out is that the military-industrial complex controls these states where they have a lot of investment, where they're important to the state economy. And those states tend to be in the along the coasts and, to some extent, in the south, whereas here where I live in Wisconsin, that's part of what he calls the hole in the donut, where there's not that much military spending. And so they're taking our taxes here and they're not putting it back. Uh, so and then he also analyzes the way that these military spending states, the high military spending states, are typically the ones that get the most attention politically, where the politicians are the most bought and paid for and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's uh, it is. It's interesting that Eisenhower made that warning more than half a century ago, and uh, right. we still aren't now, paying attention. Yeah, well, right after this started, as you know, right after World War II. And, you know, when I think about the $1.5 trillion, it's like, you know, how much of that could we have used to, you know, create millions of jobs, rebuild America's infrastructure? I mean, it's so obvious, and I think people are becoming more and more aware of the disparity and, you know, as the old saying goes, follow the money. Where does your tax, where do your tax dollars go? And what can you do about, you know, the mis, the misuse of it? And it's, it's very frustrating for the average person to, you know, take this all in. But as we say in the book, there's a lot of stuff that people can do individually. It's not as hopeless and overwhelming as it seems. Well, that's a good idea to put in uh, ways that you know, people can actually do something positive. Uh, and what are a couple of those? Well, as you know, the day after the inauguration, there were millions of people in the street and from, you know, all political persuasions. 
So that was really heartening that, you know, people were galvanized and, you know, were demonstrating and they haven't stopped, you know. And there are things that people can do besides demonstrating. You know, we can lobby against closing that revolving door and make it illegal for officers of corporations to receive positions at government agencies that are responsible for the oversight of the same corporations. You know, that's got to stop. And we can make banks play by the rules by closing the loopholes for Wall Street and returning to the safeguards that were in place prior to the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. And we can make the wealthiest Americans pay their fair share of tax. I think everybody agrees on that, even some wealthy Americans. And force corporations to pay their fair share by totally eliminating these elaborate tax breaks like deferrals and offshore capital that politicians are always giving them. And, you know, we can return to reasonable limits on campaign contributions. I think also everyone agrees on that, so that our political representatives can't be bought and sold so easily. And we can petition Congress for, you know, we could reduce the defense budget and still be armed to the teeth and kick everybody's ass in the world. So, <laughs> you know, we and going green, there's so much money can be made by going green. It's not the end of the world to get off of oil and we can eliminate the use of public money and pension funds, you know, to invest like in Vegas, you know, in corporate corruption and stuff like that. So, you know, and the, the people getting involved in the environment and in healthcare and in their local school boards. And so it, it's kind of heartening. Yeah. As I look at this thing, like kind of the, the two key issues that I would focus on if I were to run for Congress again, like I did in 2008. And of course that was on the 9-11 truth platform. So I wasn't expect, expecting to win or at least to win and live. <laughs> but seriously, the two issues I would go for now would be one uh, public banking that is transparent uh, currency. Right now we have a currency system in which private banksters uh create the currency out of nothing by lending it into existence at interest and all of our currency is debt. And then the second issue would be antitrust legislation. Let's actually bust up monopolies. We have some antitrust legislation, but it isn't clear and straightforward enough. We need to make all forms of monopolies illegal. Any form, any situation where there's not absolute full free competition should be illegal. And the antitrust division of the Justice Department should go in and bust up the company. And that should be done to virtually all of the biggest companies in America, especially in the media. Yeah, that's what Teddy Roosevelt did a little bit of. Yeah. And even Franklin Roosevelt. And you're right. It's, you know, people don't still don't know that the Federal Reserve is, you know, is really not federal and it's not a reserve. It's private banks lending money to the United States. And, you know, Kennedy, John Kennedy wanted to end that. That's one of the reasons, you know, we might say uh, contributed to his demise uh, you know, by ending the Federal Reserve, he wanted to actually he did start using silver certificates to determine the value of the dollar. And he actually started printing that. And that ended, of course, after his assassination. But, you know, Lincoln was against central banks. And, and every once in a while, people realize that Federal Reserve or central bank is the cause of our problems. And then the central banks or the bank with its cohorts will cause a run on the dollar or a depression and then convince people, oh, see, you need a uh, central bank. This vicious cycle that happens every, you know, 15, 20, 30 years 
starting at the turn of the, you know, in the 1890s, there was a, a, a depression that was manufactured, and then 1908, and then the creation of Federal Reserve. It's been going on a long time, and, you know, people are becoming more and more aware. I think so. And, you know, we, we are seeing uh, some of that in the success of populist political campaigns. Uh, you know, Trump and Bernie Sanders would not have been candidates that most people would have expected to do that well. In fact, it looked like Bernie might have been headed for the White House if he hadn't been swindled out of votes. You didn't really mention the election fraud in the book, did you? I, I don't recall. Well, no, that's not, yeah, that's not a really a corporate conspiracy. That's true. Well, maybe uh, the voting machine manufacturers. Yeah. Or... Greg Pellas. Do you know Greg Pellas? Yeah, sure. Yeah, he's the greatest. I highly recommend his books. You know, his book, uh, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, and his, he's been researching the Koch brothers for like 35 years. He's got stacks and stacks of stuff, and he's one of the great gums, you know, great reporters ever, I think. Yeah, he's doing great work. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you also talk about the prison industrial complex as legalized slavery. Maybe you could elaborate on that expression. Yeah, most people are aware that the privatization of prisons has resulted in a, a really evil situation where it is in the financial interests of state governments and multi-billion dollar corporations, <clears throat> excuse me, to incarcerate as many people as humanly or, in this case, inhumanely possible. And that's why the United States now has the highest incarceration in the history of the world. Most of the incarcerated are blacks and Latinos. You know, they're in there on very minor crimes, and a huge amount of them, nothing more serious than, you know, like two joints or something. It's it's really a shamefully racist process, and it needs to be corrected, you know. another Well, another issue is what goes on in these prisons, you know, with rape and drugs, and it's, like, horrendous, If the especially... When you privatize a prison, you have very little control over who they hire. You know, who wants to be a guard in a, in a, you know, high security prison? The personality of the guards is pretty scary. But anyway, it's, you know, it's an industry and it's shameful. Obama was cutting back on it, but uh, Trump is reversing it because, you know, it's, it's money. Well, it seems like sometimes we project onto others uh, our own faults. And here, you know, with all the, the obsession about the barbaric Sharia law that's coming to get you, you know, the Sharia people are going to take over and, you know, cut off our hands. You know, we hear that kind of talk uh, in the right wing circles. It seems to me that's a kind of a, a, a reaction to the way that our own prison industrial complex, our so-called justice system is incredibly barbaric. Yeah, I you know, the Sharia law thing it shouldn't be bantied about because people will turn off as soon as they hear it. Uh you know, it's, it's I understand intellectually analogy, but you you immediately I think lose the argument. It's like, you know, calling someone Hitler, the, you know, the debate is over. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I, I've been Muslim since 1993 and you know, Sharia, like jihad, is a good word uh, for us Muslims. And Most it, people don't know that, though. Yeah, well, I'm trying to trying to explain I'm, it. That's why it's Truth Jihad Radio with a little definition of jihad on the front of the website, pointing out that the best, best jihad is a word of truth and the, thrown in the face of a tyrant, and that 
what jihad actually means is the struggle to be a better person and to mm-hmm. defend the community if necessary. I mean, that's what it means. And Sharia just means the path, uh, the, the walking on the path of God. And nobody, we all admit nobody knows what that path is exactly. We just do our best to try to figure out what it is. Um, right. People have demonized the word, and I'm so glad that you elaborate on the true meaning because that happens a lot when someone wants to make the case and, and um, demonize or marginalize a group, you know, they'll make stuff, <laughs> make things up that that aren't true or, or, you know, summarily dismiss an entire religion because of, you know, what some people have perverted. You could say the same thing about Christianity or uh, Judaism. You know, there are things in the history of those religions that people don't really want to talk or think about. But there are also some good things in there, too. So, you know. Yeah, it's it that, felt that's right. ironic that the three major religions have the same God. <laughs> that always kind of breaks my heart. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I used to totally not relate to the monotheistic conception of God. You know, I was brought up in a family of lapsed Unitarians, and that's as lapsed as you could get. Uh, yeah, but then I did, yeah, I did Unitarian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I still like Unitarians. We live out here yeah. near Frank Lloyd Wright's place in Spring Green, Wisconsin. But but anyway, the the, the thing is, like I, I found that this anthropomorphic conception of God was what didn't work with me. This patriarchal anthropomorphic idea of God yeah. as a big hairy guy. is one of the worst ideas in the history of mankind. Yeah. But, but, but a more sort of, let's say, more abstract and spiritual monotheism in which God is the source of creation, you know, like compare the the picture on the top of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel of the patriarchal God, that's a human being pointing to Adam and creating him with his finger, versus the mural on the top of the Dome of the Rock, which is a series of fractals kind of exploding out of a point of absolute oneness in the middle, and that's what Christians call the Godhead, and that's much closer to the Islamic conception of God, and that's one, you know, so I read monotheism as a history of gradually moving out of a tribal uh, and anthropomorphic kind of vision of God to a more abstract, spiritual, and accurate one. Did you know that about 30 or 40 years ago, they discovered that the, the painting on the Sistine Chapel where the anthropomorphized God is touching Adam, if when you look at it, it's the exact same shape as the human brain. What do you think about that? Hello? Sorry, sorry. yeah, Leonardo was probably a member of one of these cults that Dan Brown writes about. <laughs> well, I don't know. What, you know, there are certainly cults and secret societies in all of history, but uh, I think it's interesting or Michelangelo, that, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. that the, no, Da Vinci we're talking about. Leonardo da Vinci. Okay. Okay. His painting on the Sistine Chapel is a painting of the brain. If you look, you know, if you look at it, you could see that it's shaped like the brain, which means that he's trying to tell us that God comes from us and is us. Wow. That's great. I I hadn't even considered that. I don't. Did Did you notice that yourself, or where where did? No, you no. I, I just I just found that out recently, 
uh, reading uh, some, my wife and I read a lot of history, and uh, we came across this thing about that uh, the lecture, so I forget the guy's name, but I'll send it to you when I find it. But um, it's very interesting because it's, it, I think it, you know, he's trying to tell us something, maybe covertly, you know, Da Vinci. He was afraid to say that at the time, you know, like Galileo was locked up for saying we may not be the center of the universe. Right. Yeah. It sounds like he, he was uh, suggesting that the anthropomorphic vision of God is indeed uh, the product of our own brain and yeah. our own imagination, which, of course, oh. it is. Uh, even even Al-Arabi, the great Muslim theosopher, had similar insights. He talked about the difference between God as God really is, which none of us can possibly know, and yeah, then each of I our own that, conceptions. Right. I'm glad that you said that God is uh, not verbal and unknowable. No mortal can really truly comprehend, I don't think. Uh, and the, those that come close are usually martyred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Well, well that's, that's where I, I think my, my Shia Muslim friends, I'm not Shia, but my, my Shia friends are, are onto something. You know, they have this whole mythos of the martyred imams, uh, and their idea is that genuinely good spiritual leaders always get martyred. And looking at our own history here in the U.S., I think they're onto something. Yeah, when you think of, you know, Dr. King and Robert Kennedy and Malcolm X and John Kennedy and Fred Hampton and, you know, you got time for the list? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that could be a, another book, I guess, in a way. You could well, focus. God, that's my book, Dead Wrong. All Dead Wrong people. has covered most of those people, huh? Yeah, yeah, all of them. I don't, I don't know if I would, I'd consider Marilyn Monroe a spiritual icon or not. I guess some people do. No, well, uh, no, just the fact that she was murdered and, and it wasn't suicide is why she's in the book. Right, right. And so, what, what's the backstory with the Kennedy brothers and Marilyn Monroe there? Um, well, I'll tell you a nice, a true. Uh, what happened with when John Kennedy was. With Marilyn, they had they had tape recorded it, and um, so we know that Jack Kennedy was with Marilyn, and we know that Bobby was in saw Marilyn the day she died, but left before, way before he did. Some people say the Kennedys murdered her. No such thing. Um, what happened was. Hoover and the mob wanted to embarrass Kennedy, so one or the other, or both, with each other's knowledge, murdered her to embarrass the Kennedys. But people got there way before the cops and cleaned it up, so the, the, the whole thing kind of backfired on Hoover and the mob. Uh, yeah, the Kennedys are very close to Maryland, and there's some people that think she was going to spill the beans on a few things, but uh, I don't know how, if that's, I'm not ready to say that, but I wouldn't disbelieve it if it was, you know, some people believe that, that she was going to have a big press conference. Uh, but that sounds too sensational to me. Yeah. Well, uh, there were a bunch of these people, as you point out, in Hit List who were threatening to expose things about the uh, Kennedy assassination, uh, Dorothy yeah. Kilgallen, 
And right. uh, what, what was what was her name? Uh, the Mary. Uh, the, the Mary Pinchot Meyer. Mary Pinchot Meyer. Yeah, those are some she amazing used to, stories. Yeah, she used to get high with Kennedy, and they did acid together, and smoke pot, and she was kind of his hip mistress, and um, she was murdered uh, on a towpath in Georgetown. Uh, and they blamed on this homeless black gentleman who was kind of short, and he would have had a, you know, got up on a ladder to kill her the way they said she was murdered, and it was impossible for this guy to do to her what she, you know, what was done. But all these murders are so, you know, suicides with the wrong hand, suicides where people are shot five times, suicides where people shot themselves in the back, um, and on and on, almost laughable. But they're all on record. I mean, the, the hit list book is um, very corroborated because so many things are in the public domain now. Over the last 50, 60 years, the Freedom of Information Act has uh, allowed us to really get a lot of stuff out of the FBI and the Justice Department that was not known contemporaneously. So you know, there's stuff that keeps coming out over, you know, over time. It just adds to the puzzle of, you know, the Kennedy murder and 9-11 and uh, the banking crisis and all these manufactured things. Uh, interesting you, you add the banking crisis to that list. Well, but, but uh, you know, sticking with the Kennedy thing, isn't Trump about to have to decide whether to reveal the JFK Records Act records like the last remaining ones or not? There's, I think that was a story we covered a couple of weeks ago at False Flag Weekly News. So have you heard about that? No, please tell me about it. Yeah, the JFK Records Act, as I'm sure you know, was was passed in, uh, at, right after the Oliver Stone movie came out and mm -hmm. mandated that the uh, all you know records held pertaining to the JFK assassination had to be made public uh, before such and such a date. You know, so there's a kind of a, been a uh, progressive uh, yeah. releasing. Yeah, they released a million pages. Yeah, so, but so there's still tons that aren't exactly. Well, the, well, the, the last, the rest of them are all supposed to be released unless Trump decides not to and signs an order to that effect. I believe by about the end of this month, or we're, we're, I think we're pretty really? close to that deadline. I believe so. Yeah. Now we should look it up to get the details. You but, would. Well, I know I did not know that, and I, I should know that, and I will definitely call my people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll look into that. And then, and speaking of Trump and and the JFK records, uh, I think the way I noticed this was there was a story over in some of the London papers, not only the tabloids like the Daily Mirror, but I think there was one in the Independent. This was from two, three, four weeks ago that uh, pointed out that having, you know, this conspiracy theorist Trump uh, being the guy to decide whether or not to uh, dispel the rest of the JFK stuff uh, was, oh, was an interesting, interesting. situation. Yeah. yeah, they're already trying to marginalize it if he decides to do it. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And they're also yeah, pointing out Roger Stone is, is a close Trump advisor. And Stone, of course, wrote that book on LBJ's role in the assassination. Yeah, he's clinically insane. Yeah, he sounds like a kind of a weird guy. He's a political dirty trickster. Uh, He's a loathsome, loathsome, misogynistic, racist. You know, he's... he's He's not a good guy. Well, that's, that's what my colleagues at Veterans Today tell me. You know, my, my tendency is 
that they no they those those guys are very sharp you know they've learned the hard way yeah i think some of them have for sure uh well well uh, speaking of the of the brain you know you mentioned the uh the da vinci masterpiece on the sistine chapel ceiling uh, uh the creation of adam being uh resembling the brain and oh. the uh you have a chapter in your book on on big pharma and uh, you talk about the uh, chemical effects on the brain of some of these antidepressants and the Parkinson's stuff that Robin Williams was taking. Uh, that's pretty eye-opening. Well, you know, I dedicate the book to Robin Williams, my dear friend. We did a lot of research on pharmaceuticals for this book, and we included very detailed charts showing what prescription drugs can do and you know, Robin apparently was given four different powerful prescriptions in his final months. Mirzapine, also known as Remeron, Seroquel, Maripax, Cinemet. You know, and the so-called side effects of these drugs include strong suicidal ideation, thoughts of self-harm, depression, uh, you know, all these uh, unhealthy urges, compulsions. And Robin was clean and sober at the time of his death. You know, news drugs, uh, news, news drugs. The news said there were no <laughs> drugs. Yeah, right. News is a drug. But the news uh, reports that no drugs were found in his body were very misleading. Psychiatric drugs were found in his body. And in our opinion and the opinion of many others, that was the real cause of his death and, and what drove him to it. And you don't hear this on the news, but there's about 23,000 people a year that commit suicide that are on these pharmaceuticals, you know, it can be attributed to the the misprescribing or the overprescribing or the abuse of these drugs that I think, in my opinion, are too casually dispensed. Well, it seems that many of the mass shootings have also been traced to uh, the possible influence of some of these drugs. Well, one, yeah, one in four Americans are now taking psychiatric drugs like these and and they're you know they're frying people's brains and a study that we cite in the book revealed that in most of the mass shootings like school shootings in America the shooter is either on or is withdrawing from these psychiatric medications you know that's scary and I don't mean to demonize uh, medication and, and drugs and pharmaceuticals because you know I uh, would not be here if it wasn't for certain drugs. And many people that I know, you know, who had health issues, not just, you know, mental issues, but all kinds of issues. So, you know, we've got to be careful not to demonize all pharmaceuticals. We're just talking about, you know, these psychiatric drugs that are overprescribed and misused. Well, how, how could this be fixed? I mean, what... What would be the the way to do that? You know, I, I heard Mary Rowert, I think her name is, a famous libertarian doctor who says deregulate everything. But I just see that as turning it over to the uh, the, the companies to sell us even more stuff. Uh, I, deregulate what? Well, her her claim was that we're not getting the 
effective drugs we need because of the regulation barrier. And I was skeptical, and I challenged her on that, uh, because it seems to me that that would just exacerbate the kinds of problems that you're describing here. So then the question becomes, well, what would solve this problem? How could we get these pharmaceutical countries, uh, companies under control, like ban advertising, or you know, what are the steps well, that we should take? I think, you know, um, first of all, that's a crazy idea, uh, you know, just to let them flood the market with whatever they want. It's all about money, not about, you know, helping humanity. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, that makes me uh, laugh and get distressed is all these ads on TV for drugs. When I was a kid, I guess when you were a kid, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, you went to the doctor and, if, you know, he would prescribe something if needed. And, you know, the visit was $7 or $15 or whatever. Nowadays, people go into the doctor and they said, I saw this thing on TV. And it, could you give it to me? And so we're down telling the doctors, you know, the roles are reversed. And that's people see these ads on TV and say, well, I have that symptom or, you know, I want to be happy or, you know, I want, accidentally peed in my pants once. Maybe I. You know, and the side effects on these drugs are terrifying. I don't know about banning advertising, but uh, because, you know, then you get into free speech and all this. But we did get cigarettes off the air, didn't we? And alcohol. So now I'm thinking out loud, Kevin, and I, I guess I wouldn't be allergic to banning these drugs from being advertised on television. Uh, and I think the public, you know, is waking up and people have to be more informed about what they're putting in their bodies. And, you know, it's a it's a two way street. There's a lot of irresponsibility in the medical profession. I mean, I've well, been. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it's sort of the opposite extreme from the uh, libertarian Dr. Mary I mentioned. Uh, I also have radio guests who are on the kind of. Uh, far left side of the spectrum, people like Andre Volchek, who are convinced that all of these problems are just symptomatic of the underlying problem of capitalism and that the real solution is to radically change that system so that the people making drugs to help humanity would be doing it to help humanity rather than trying to make lots of money. Um, it's, uh, are you, where, where do you stand on, on that debate about, you know, whether capitalism well, needs to be overthrown? An admirable utopian, you know, you know, cat's out of the bag, though. That'll never, never happen. The best we can hope for is to regulate and modify, you know, the, the, the false information about drugs, these miracle claims and clamp down on, how liberally certain things are prescribed. And, you know, there's a lot that can be done. But, uh, you know, a lot of people are self-prescribing. They're doctor shopping and they're getting drugs from friends. And, you know, that's never happened before. And I think people have every right to ingest what they want. Uh, but, you know, that gets into, I think, a lot of drugs should be legal and regulated, like alcoholism, like tobacco is. Well, I mean, it yeah. happened with marijuana, nothing but all these tax, all this tax revenue going into the Colorado and Washington and these places that are, have legalized that are just 
making money and crime is the same. You know, there's no spike in crime. So, you know, certain things should be up to the individual and not society. Well, I recently had had a, a guest on, Dr. James Petras, who's one of the world's top sociologists, and he, he did a, an article on the working class uh, dependence on opioids, these artificial legal painkillers. Huge yeah. epidemic. It's and apparently causing a lot of problems, including a, a collapse in life expectancy. Uh, so, so there, there's a another example of uh, and with the opioids. I don't know about the, you know, the I guess full legalization with uh, sort of treatment for people to try to get off them is a good idea. But you know, with modern science, they can invent stuff that you know basically it's like the stuff you know when you give rats cocaine. They just keep, you know, pushing the button to get the cocaine injection to, you know, change their brain, and they wither up and die happy. And you don't really want people doing that in Aldous Huxley no. dystopian society. No, I I totally agree. And you know, heroin was invented by the Bayer Company. Mm-hmm. Bayer. Weren't they involved in uh, Nazi Germany? Uh, yeah, but uh, that's another show. Okay, uh, another five shows. Um, but they created it because after the Civil War, a lot of soldiers were on morphine. And they, became, they called it the soldier's disease. They became addicted. And so Bear said, we, got, we came up with the stuff that will get them off the morphine. And it was heroin. Um, so, you know, I'm all for finding something to replace opioids. But again, I can tell you from personal experience, from you know, after surgery, um, when used as prescribed, they're they're great, you yeah. know, uh, for pain. But of course, you know, they're open for abuse. And if you notice that it's the Confederate States, Appalachia also, where the highest use of opiates is reported. And that's I, I I find that fascinating. Well, why do you and think I, that is? It's too hot down I, there. No, I think a, a despair, economic despair, uh, feeling left out. Uh, you know, terrible health care, no jobs, loss of hope. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the solution that. Solution to that isn't isn't just you know changing drug laws. It's it's changing society so that people have decent jobs and something to live for. Yeah, I mean, there's has uh, at the risk of being uh, well. I think there has to be a, a spiritual awakening, and not in a corny kind of uh, way, but in a way that slowly informs everyone. Wants the same thing if you think about it. They want Health, good health care, they want clean air, you know, they want to make sure their food doesn't have shit in it. And, you know, there's like basic things that everybody wants. They want the disenfranchised to be taken care of. And it, it's just that the messaging of and the venality and the contentiousness that has popped up in the, since the 80s, particularly, has really gotten out of hand. Civility, I'm a big believer in manners and civility. And that's kind of going out the window. 
people can't talk to each other anymore if they're if they have different beliefs and you know i i always believe the marketplace of free ideas everybody's you know there's room for everybody because we all believe in the same thing i thought and then the messages get perverted and people um like uh you know roger ailes just passed away and his legacy is just poisoning um, poisoning the atmosphere of politics and civil discourse and, you know, um, glorifying misogyny and um, flirting with, overtly flirting with racism. And, I mean, just, you know, when you have people that, one person that powerful who creates an entity that becomes the arm of a political party, and is on 24 hours a day for years and shapes the thoughts of millions of people. That's Orwellian. Unfortunately, you know, 1984 goes both ways. You know, they may be watching us, but we're watching them too. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when I was first dragged on to Fox News uh, for a so-called interview with Hannity. I, you know, I'd never actually watched Hannity. I had no idea what I was getting into. But, you, know, you mentioned the decline in civility. Uh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't, you know, it was a couple minutes into the interview. He's, he's calling me names. And uh, you know, like so so it, it made a good, you know, two or three minute uh, YouTube. But as far as exchanging ideas, uh, there's not, no way you can do that in that format. Well, you know, I've always said that if, if, if these guys are right and I don't mean right wing, I mean, they th they're right then why do they constantly demonize and yell at and turn off the mic of people that just, you know, it's just a, it's poison. I never watch, I never watch Fox News because it's poison. You know, you get upset if you watch it and who needs that? You know what, you know what they're doing, you know what they're going to say. And it's a, it's a sorry ass place to get your information. As a matter of fact, two years ago, there was a, a survey taken and, turns out that people who don't watch any news know more about current events than people who watch Fox News. So it's a negative source. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it drains your brain. <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I don't know if it's just the right wing. I mean, I agree the, the right wing is, is at the no, I mean, cutting edge of this. Like Fox on the yeah, left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but uh, both sides can be, you know. Well, yeah, this breakdown of civility and this unwillingness to hear ideas that you disagree with, uh, that's very much spread to the left. I mean, here's a case in point. They just banned three uh, panels at the Left Forum, which is the biggest event for the left. It's happening in New York, June 2nd to 4th, because I was on them. At least that's what I'm hearing. And so there's, yeah, we're in a big... It's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, what, what's going on here is, is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Muslim and I'm a 9-11 truth guy. I got chased out yeah. of the academy for talking about that issue. And naturally I went down various rabbit holes, including the rabbit hole of, hey, is the state of Israel really such a good idea? And I discovered, well, no, it's not. And so I've been talking about that and I've been labeled an evil anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. And apparently there are enough people involved with the left forum that that can get your panels canceled. It's not just the left that you would upset by 
saying that about Israel. Well, no, I, I, yeah, even before I was saying anything about Israel, when I was just talking about 9-11, it was the Republicans that got me chased out of the University of Wisconsin. So I, I'm not very popular uh, just, among certain quarters of either side. <laughs> well, you, you mean only because of 9-11 you were thrown out? Yeah, because, or, because I, was on a, I went on a radio show and right. expressed my belief that it was an inside job. That was it. That's a, that was enough to get the state legislature up in arms, and, and 61 Republicans signed on to a letter demanding that I be fired. What uh, year? That was, was that? in 2006. Really? Yeah. So then I was all over Fox and you know, CNN for, for a summer and, uh, and part of the fall because the university refused to cancel the class, but I never could get hired again after that because I was an adjunct on semester-to-semester hiring, so I became financially toxic to all American universities, and I haven't been able to work in the academy ever since. Well, is that because of 9-11 or because of your, that you don't think Israel is a good idea? No, 9-11. I, I didn't even start really talking about Israel until years after that. Yeah, well, I'd be very careful if I were you. <laughs> well, Most, you know. Intellectually, yeah. spiritually, historically, and it's a very complex thing that you you can't really – in this day and age, make that statement and well, well, okay. So, so, so let's have a conversation. What, what? Tell me why Israel could be considered a good idea. Why it's a good idea? Yeah, like what? Why the people of I mean, Palestine what, should be what, ethnically what, cleansed? Why isn't it a good idea? Because, because the people origin of Israel. Yeah, the, the people of Palestine, which you know were they were you know some of them were Jews, they're Arabs, Arab Jews who were living in Palestine, and invaders from outside came in and ethnically cleansed them and mass murdered them to get them out, and now the majority of them are either exiled or living in de facto concentration camps, and all of this for what? Because I guess the rationale is it, depending on who you are in one quarters, it's that God gave us this land thousands of years ago. Uh, and we're going to keep taking more and more of it till we get from the Nile to the Euphrates. In other quarters, it's that we are a persecuted group and the world owes us something, so we're going to take this, and even though it wasn't the Palestinians that did it to us. And neither of those rationales withstand critical scrutiny, do they? Um, also, I think that a lot of the people that in, in – you're talking about the Balfour Agreement in 1914 – uh, seven, 1917, I think. 1917, yeah. yeah. Um, I am not a fan of a lot of the things that that Israel does to the Palestinians, and I, you know, I am a, I'm Jewish, and it's very hard for Jews to criticize Israel, but I I don't think that's rational. I think you should be able to and that you know there are certain things that everyone would agree that israel does that are way over the way over the line inarguably and um the, when you consider that they're surrounded by you know 50 million people that that you know want to kill them all it's it's a very touchy situation. Wait wait a minute. Where, where do you, what's the evidence that anybody wants to kill them all? I, I agree that the entire Middle East, other than you know the basically Jew, Jewish people in Israel, 
doesn't want a Jewish state there. They want one Palestine for everybody there on an equal basis. But I, I've, I mean, I go to conferences in Iran with the hardcore anti-Zionist contingent. Nobody wants to kill everybody. Nobody wants to kill anybody. They just want, uh, they just they want, want fair treatment for everybody. They want to drive them into the sea. That's the, well, so somebody uh, wants to drive somebody into the sea, but I'm not sure if you got the the, the character straight. <laughs> Who's driving who? Yeah, well, that's a good question. You know, I'm not I'm not a fan of the settlements at all. I'll tell you that up front. And um, the Zionism has changed in the last, you know, since its inception, and the original. The genesis of it was after the Holocaust, the Jews were looking for a home. And well, no, wait, wait, wait. The, the, the huge, huge Zionist movement colonized and, you know, came, came in against the will of the Palestinians in the 1920s and 1930s. There was no Holocaust then. No, you're right. But there was a tremendous amount. There was a diaspora and there were, you know, Jews from all over the world that were that did not have a homeland and have been persecuted for thousands of years, as you know. At any rate, the Holocaust certainly, if some, you know, would justify a state for those people, but not the means, a lot of the means by which it was, came into existence. Why should it be in Palestine? Hmm? Why would that justify a state in Palestine? Why would that justify the genocide against the Palestinians? I wouldn't call it genocide. Well, Lawrence Davidson does. He's a prof- he's a Jewish professor at Westchester mm-hmm. University. He's, it's cultural genocide that meets the definition under international law of genocide. Cultural genocide. Yeah. As opposed to. Yeah, a, a people has been destroyed. Physical elimination of the people. Well, they're they're physically I, eliminated from their land and their way of life. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, disagreeing with you, but. I think it's too late to say that. I think. Do you think there should be two states? No, I, I I think that there should be one state and everybody should be equal. And I think that it, that one state well, could be a tremendous kind of, success. I think it would it? it could become the economic and intellectual engine of the Middle East. What would you call it? Israel Sure. Why not? I don't think it matters. I, I you know thought, what? You know. I'll tell you what. If I would be for. Ending these settlements because you have a few hundred people in them and thousands of soldiers that have to protect them doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of Jews in Israel who aren't a fan of the settlements and who, you know, are are not a fan of a lot of things that are going on. And they all live there and they all don't hate the Palestinians, believe me. Um, well, wait, wait, wait a second, Richard. Uh, during the cast, Operation Cast Lead poll showed that 90 percent of Israelis, and that must have meant about 100 virtually 100 percent of Israeli Jews supported Cast Lead, the murder of more than 2,000 people, white phosphorus bombings of UN installations, uh, ambulances, hospitals, uh, shelter, refugee shelters, the mowing down of kids on the beach, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, virtually the entire Jewish population of Israel supported that. And sure, there are very few uh, holdouts and, and, you know, more power to them. But there's a real problem with public opinion I, in I Israel today. That 90%, but I can show you the polls. No, I believe you. I just have never seen that or heard that. Yeah, see, the, ahead, the, the American Jews, you, you know, American Jews, American Jews, by and large, I think, are 
pretty uh, have good intentions. The major, vast majority of American Jews have good intentions, but are misinformed about the actual state of affairs and especially the, the Jewish opinion in Israel itself. I think there's been well, a turn I'm, for the worst there. A lot of, I read a lot and I know a lot and I know people that live in Israel or live in the America and have relatives in Israel. And believe me, there's a tremendous amount of Israelis who are want to, uh, who are repelled by this by the uh, settlements and a lot of other things that we're talking about. So you know, I wouldn't the ninety percent figure. I'll take your word for it, but I wouldn't summarily dismiss all the Jews in Israel as having the same mindset and you know wanting the same thing. A lot of them, you know. There are many, many people that work with Palestinians, and I know a doctor that does pro bono work over there, and uh, uh, some a couple of teachers, and so um, it's 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 a very very tricky issue, and I, I totally respect what uh, you know everything that you're saying, and I certainly intellectually. Um, respect what you're saying and uh well i appreciate I, your your willingness to have a conversation on this which is puts you one step ahead of the left forum well i think yeah a lot of people left and right don't want to talk about this <laughs> you know? yeah yeah well you know it's, it's amazing you've you know you, you've uh you're open to stuff like 9-11 jfk right wing jews shut me down once on a panel because i was you know mildly Criticizing Israel. Go ahead. What are you saying? Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're, you're too reasonable for those people. <laughs> well, you know, I think you're right. A lot of them really don't know what's you know going on, and that can be a problem when people are misinformed. And yeah, that people are misinformed on so many things. Well, you know, we're about huh. at the end of the hour, so thank you so much because you've you've done you've, you've done more than your share at attempting to better inform people on a very wide range of critically important issues. You've done excellent work. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having me on. Okay, thank you, Richard Belzer. Keep up the great work. Look forward to another one sometime. I'm selling my book. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. bye bye bye